Hey marketers, if you want to get the latest news, trends, and insights in marketing, advertising, and tech, check out the Adweek Podcast Network. Learn from leading voices across media and marketing with original shows like Yeah, That's Probably an Ad, Marketing Vanguard, and Tech Magic with Kathy Hackle. Start listening now by searching Adweek wherever you listen to podcasts. My dad works in B2B marketing. He came by my school for career day and said he was a big ROAS man. Then he told everyone how much he loved calculating his return on ad spend. My friends still laugh at me to this day. Not everyone gets B2B, but with LinkedIn, you'll be able to reach people who do. Get $100 credit on your next ad campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash generate to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash generate. Terms and conditions apply. LinkedIn, the place to be, to be. Hey there, are you ready to elevate your personal brand or company? Meet Viral Growth, your one-stop shop for video content and audience building. Imagine growing your brand organically on social media without the hassle of editing videos for hours. With Viral Growth, it's a breeze. They handle the brainstorming, scripting, and editing while you simply just hit record. And don't worry about your niche. They cater to everyone, from business and marketing to health and wellness. Are you ready to make waves in the social media realm? Visit viralgrowth.io and use code ADWEEK, that's A-D-W-E-E-K, all lowercase, and get 10% off your plan. This episode is brought to you by Facebook, the place to build your brand in a mobile-first world. Facebook helps you create marketing that empowers your creativity. With tools like vertical video, Instagram stories, and 360 video, Facebook is the ideal place to test, improve, and expand your mobile advertising. Learn more at facebook.com slash video creativity. That's facebook.com slash video creativity. You're listening to Yeah, That's Probably an Ad. This is the Adweek Podcast, where we talk about marketing, media, advertising, pop culture, technology, because in the end, everything's an ad. I'm David Greiner. I'm an editor with Adweek.com. With me as he is each week is Tim Nutt, our creative editor. Tim, welcome back. Good to be here. And we've also got back a frequent guest on the podcast, our senior editor on the agency's beat, Patrick Coffey. Patrick, welcome back. Hi, David. And also back, uh, Katie Richards, a staff writer covering the uh, brand marketing world and agencies and all sorts of other fun stuff. Katie, always great to have you. Thanks for having me back. All right. Uh, well, today we're going to be talking about our one of our bigger uh, you know, honors of the year, the media agencies of the year uh, that Adweek names. Uh, but what's interesting about that, before everyone stops listening because they heard the word media agency, I just want to say it's actually a, really a fascinating conversation about how this idea of media strategy is evolving and how, you know, how creative and innovative it's becoming. It's just a much more interesting field than when it used to be, no offense to longtime media professionals, but when it used to be more about where you placed your buys and how you measure your effectiveness. And like, it's really a fascinatingly changing industry. So I'm looking forward to that. But first, let's talk about the news. All right. Subway is always a fascinating point of discussion for us. Uh, Tim was was remembering that this was Subway was one of the first things we ever talked about. Was that was that the Jared scandal or was it, what? What do you remember? No, it was like one of the f- I think it was just uh, like a new campaign when we ver- when we first started doing the podcast in the fall of 2016. Um, they were doing like new work then, and we were talking about it. I think it might have been even on the first episode. 
Yeah, I think it was like their first campaign since the Jared fallout. Uh, well, they are back with a big, bold brand message. I'm, I'm going to, uh, not to be judgmental here, I'm going to save people the audio because I find the audio to be really kind of painful to listen to. And I say this as someone who listened to a lot of punk music uh, growing up, but it's a very kind of rough around the edges audio track. It ran as a 60 second spot that ran during the Olympics. Uh, their tagline is make it what you want. Uh, so kind of reminiscent of the Burger King, you know, your way uh, it, messaging. Um, the spot is very not Subway. I'll give it that. Uh, it's, uh, yeah, it's, I don't know. It's, it's just, a, it's a lot of like kind of teenagery uh, visuals. Uh, almost reminds me of some of the Taco Bell work that we've seen in the past of kids running around being crazy. Uh, and then a mix of different, you know, someone wrecking a grocery store dressed like a horse. I don't know. There's all sorts of crazy antics. Uh, and the message being like, you know, don't let the man tell you what to eat. Order order a custom sandwich. <laughs> so um, that said, I am obviously curious to get your thoughts. It's uh, it's taken like all things Subway, it's taken quite a bit of criticism and, and mockery online. Uh, it, uh, you know, mostly for being kind of intentionally edgy. Uh, there's a part where they drop an F-bomb, but they mute it out. And like, I don't know. Uh, Katie, let's start with you. What do you think of uh, this, this new spot? I believe it's from Dentsu. Um, but uh, what do you think of it? Yeah, I'm not a huge fan. Um, <clears throat> I I feel like it's one of those things where... The brand and the agency were like, oh, we need to be cool and hip and like revive the brand and like what it stands for. But like, I can't really tell what it stands for from this. It's just a bunch of like user generated clips put together. And I, it's just, it's just too much for me. And like the bold text and different colors on top of it, it's very like, what is going on here? You're trying too hard. Just, just stop. Yeah, it feels like like you should see someone slamming an energy drink, <laughs> you know, like random. Yeah, and like the guy that just hops into like the icy water at one point in his bathing suit. I'm like, what? Why is that relevant to your brand? I don't get it. Uh, Patrick, instead of playing, you, uh, instead uh, of playing audio of the ad, could we play audio of Steve Buscemi saying, "How do you do, fellow kids?" from, from Thirty Rock. <laughs> uh, Patrick, what was your take on this one? Well, David, did you know that there are 37 million possible sandwiches with all of the available Subway ingredients? I did not. Earth that's shattering. The point, that's the point of this ad, see, that it's all about personal choice. It's about being an individual. And at Subway, you can be your own sandwich artist. <laughs> nice. Right. That, that may be the most positive thing, even if it was said ironically, the most positive thing Patrick's ever said on this podcast. So it's very forgiving of you. Um, yeah. Uh, so, Tim, uh, creatively, do you feel that they hit the mark at all? I mean, did they, setting aside kind of everyone's long term mockery of Subway, what was your take on it? No, I mean, I, I think it's formulaic in the extreme. And if you threw like an energy drink on the end uh, instead of the Subway logo, you know, it would, it would work just as well. So I don't think they're really carving out, you know, a lot of new territory here. I think they were better off kind of focusing on their, on their product deals and things like that. Uh, obviously the, the brand has been in trouble lately though. So I guess they're, they have to try something new, but it's such an anodyne, like, you know, all you can eat message here that I just don't see, I don't see it doing much for the brand. 
Someone responded on Twitter uh, saying that she had been part of a and maybe coordinated this kind of school college research project where they asked actual students, you know, what could Subway do uh, to make it better? And uh, and the responses were largely about the atmosphere. And I think that's really valid. If you walk into a subway, it feels like you're eating at a 24 hour emergency clinic. You know, it's just got this like harsh lighting. It's very uh, antiseptic, except when it's not. You know, it's like the worst case is when it's like that, but also kind of dirty. <laughs> you know, so it's like it's, yeah, it's to a, get to like, but to get to the point of being like a Chipotle or a, one of these more like slightly more upscale, you know, places would would cost so much money. I mean, they have so many. Uh, they have so many uh, restaurants. Don't they have more restaurants than McDonald's? Or at least they did at one point, I think. Yeah, they were the largest chain in America. Um, and I assume that's still the case. It was by quite a ways, which a lot of people don't realize. But if you think about it, I mean, maybe this isn't true of New York City, but uh, where I live and where most folks live, there's a subway every, like, you know, half mile. Um, so it's they're certainly still everywhere. Uh, well, definitely uh, you can watch the clip on adweek.com and check it out. Uh, I did want to give credit to uh, Natasha Pizzini, and apologies if I'm not pronouncing your, your name uh, right, but uh, she was the one uh, who had uh, sent us that uh, survey that she had done with her class of college students. Uh, and that was really fascinating seeing, you know, you have to wonder, like, are they doing similar research but to your point Tim maybe they have and they've just decided that changing the atmosphere and the vibe is just so much more expensive than making an ad that says hey teens eat at Subway Uh, (laughs) it's exciting Uh, All right. Uh, also in the news uh, Patrick you had a great scoop this week Uh, there's been some questions over the past year about whether the fearless girl statue made by by McCann for uh, State Street Global Advisors would get to remain in her spot originally. I think it was supposed to be a very temporary statue, but uh, obviously it has been a huge hit uh, with tourists. And uh, so tell us what you learned uh, about her fate, Patrick. Well, essentially, um, we've known that the Office of the Mayor of New York and State Street have been in conversations about what they're going to do with the statue exactly. But What we learned is that they have decided to give it a permanent place in New York. The only issue is where exactly it will live. And um, another interesting part is that uh, wherever it does end up, Charging Bull will also be there, which is sort of the, you know, antagonist to Fearless Girl and provides her with her her context, really, Um, because you can argue that she really wouldn't be as effective either visually or conceptually if she weren't facing down the charging pole. Yeah, if she were looking, if she were like looking at a subway restaurant, it wouldn't be there. <laughs> <laughs> Tie, tying it all together. So they've been, from what we hear, they've been discussing two options, which are either to move the two of them together to a different location that would be slightly more pedestrian friendly because she's been such a popular tourist attraction or to keep them where they are and then to sort of redesign the surrounding area, the the sidewalks, et cetera, in order to um, open up the space for traffic. I feel like it has to be on Wall Street though somewhere or nearby. Yeah. Yeah, I think so. I mean, the bowl is like sort of synonymous with Wall Street, although there's plenty of room down there. It is... The bull has, was always on this kind of weird little strip of land kind of in between three roads. I think that's the biggest issue is that 
you know the, the the piece of land is not at all really meant to to contain a lot of folks and there's tons of people there constantly well what's that uh, cobblestone little hipster road off wall street that's becoming a really popular spot especially in the summer stone street yeah um, yeah well, that'd be a good spot yeah i mean there's definitely space for it down there i think it it would be weird to not have it on Wall Street, though, to Tim's point. Like, it's just the the bull is such an iconic image with Wall Street. And if you're going to keep them together, I feel like they have to stay down there somewhere. They put it put it in meatpacking districts and just change the whole, <laughs> the whole message. That would be so weird. <laughs> yeah, Bowling Green Park has some room, I think. That's a, yeah. that's a pretty that's nice, true. that's a nice spot as well. Maybe they'll end up there. Well, it's it has definitely been fascinating to see. Uh, you know, it's one of those things as as advertising journalists, I think we all feel maybe a little overexposed to Fearless Girl. Like it, it's something we've been talking about and hearing about constantly for the last year. But you know, if you remove yourself from our very small niche of the world, it's fascinating that uh, this advertising creation is something that people still line up uh, to be a part of. And, and advertising people, especially from around the country, when they visit New York, that is their spot you know they don't take pictures of the street sign of madison avenue or whatever anymore they go down and get a picture of fearless girl uh so it's certainly become a destination and i'm glad to hear it'll be sticking around so uh bully for mccann and for uh uh and for state street for creating something that's really got some permanence all right well that's it for news this week it's time to move on to ads worth watching All right, Tim, you've got uh, a really interesting one for us this week. Not quite an ad, but yeah, probably an ad. What do you got? Yeah, so, I mean, this is um, a good one to talk about when talking about media, because this is such a great media idea. I want to talk about Diesel and the stunt that they pulled down on Canal Street uh, in New York for, for New York Fashion Week. So anyone who knows the fashion world knows uh, that Canal Street is this sort of enormous marketplace of knockoff goods. You know, they sell... These little storefronts um, sell clothes, bags, shoes, um, all fake. You know, they're knockoff products made to look like real fashion labels, and they're sold for cheap, and they do, you know, pretty thriving business down there is this sort of kind of shameful, like, black market of fashion. And, you know, of course, no real fashion house wants anything to do with them. You know, they're they're kind of an enemy. They're threatening to the brand in some ways. They're threatening to the profits. Uh, but what Diesel did was pretty wild. So they um, decided during New York Fashion Week to actually go down to Canal Street and, and open their own little uh, authentic knockoff store uh, down there. So it looked blatantly fake. There was a store, you know, the storefront um, had the word Diesel on the front, but it was misspelled. Instead of D-I-E-S-E-L, it was D-E-I-S-E-L. Uh, and the products uh, similarly had... Uh, you know, the diesel misspelled on the labels on the clothes too. Uh, but it turns out, you know, the products were actually real. Like diesel made these and intentionally put uh, a misspelling of the brand name on them. And so, you know, so not only were they real, they were almost better than real because, you know, this this limited run of, of diesel products with the name misspelled makes them sort of this, you know, highly limited edition collection. And I think uh, the folks who bought, bought up some of this stuff were selling it on eBay for like, you know, thousands of dollars. And so, but, but at the store, they're being sold at knockoff prices. So, um, I mean, there's so much that I love about this idea, but I wanted to ask Katie first because she uh, went down there and actually visited the store when it was open last week. Um, Katie, what was it like uh, stopping by this place? 
Yeah, it was kind of a crazy experience because they had so they had like set set the shop up on a Thursday and gone in and recorded footage of people like haggling and getting away with like $20 for a sweatshirt that to your point like went on to sell for $600 on eBay or something. And then they shut it down and dropped the video the next day and the line to get in this like tiny little dingy Canal Street storefront was like down the street, wrapped around the block. Um, It was so authentic in so many ways too, which was really cool. So like if you went inside, they had neon signs everywhere that you would see at like a tacky like dollar store, like discount store. Um, And they were like cut with like weird edges and it said stuff like uh, yesterday only and it's fashion week outside and we speak English, like just really funny, like, There's jeans here, too. Like, just really, really funny boxes of clothes everywhere. It was so perfectly, like, authentic to Canal Street. Um, and it was just a really cool experience to see. So it was uh, Publicis New York uh, in collaboration with Publicis Italy, I believe. Um, and, and you spoke to Andy Bird, the the CCO at, at Publicis New York. What did he tell you about this? He said uh, it was really interesting. He was saying, like, you know, we took the idea to the client. And I also spoke with uh, Diesel's CMO, and he was like, my immediate thought was to kill this idea, like, stop it in its tracks. Um, But he, Andy, was kind of saying, like, when you have a really great idea, you know it's going to be great, but you you never know how good it's going to be until it kind of unveils itself to people and they were completely like shocked by how successful they had been Um, and they kind of were like we might get fired for doing this which I thought was was interesting and then the fact that they were just so passionate about it that they really really saw it through every little detail um, and it turned out to be a great success. Yeah you mentioned the video maybe we could listen to a few seconds of that because um, it's very funny the the guys who are working this store kind of kind of haggling or, or chatting with the, the, the uh, visitors, trying to tell them that it's r- real clothing, which it is, but they're, they're clearly confused because it's, it's misspelled and it's quite obviously fake or what they thought was fake. Listen, listen to a clip from the video. What's up, Playboy? Diesel. Authentic. Check it out. Real diesel in there. That, that's not real diesel. Diesel. What do you mean not real diesel? You know, this is... This is not how you spell diesel, yeah? I spell tomato, you spell tomato. D-E-I-S-E-L, diesel. D-I-E. You're not a cop, are you? No. All right, come on, what are you, a nerd? You checking for spelling? One for 20 Uh and two for 40. Happy birthday. Dude, look at me. I know style. (laughs) This store has been in my family. Yeah. One and a half weeks. This is the bad boy. Bad boy here. I mean, you can't argue with quality. You just said that was... So the larger context here is that uh, Diesel has a global campaign that they launched uh, about a year ago called Go With The Flaw, and it's celebrating flaws, and, you know, it's very modern in its view of, you know, perfection is overrated, that kind of thing, and that's what their, their global TV spots have all been about, and this idea obviously fits, you know, very well into that. And, and, and I just love this idea of a, of a brand embracing the thing that, that you're supposed to look down on or, or you know, consider beneath you. Uh, I'm sure there's, you know, many reasons for a compo- company like Diesel to sort of despise the folks who make and sell these knockoffs. You know, they, it's not, you know, they are like a threat in, in a way. But, but I think the genius of this idea is this recognition on the part of the brand that your customers are just people and they're people who have 
probably limited budgets and and might be tempted by a knockoff here and there and that's not the most evil thing in the world and so to kind of go down there and mix it up like this with with those folks um such an endearing way to like connect with consumers and you know a really really fun way of kind of just being more on the street level with people and not to mention just the pr idea of doing this such a buzzy idea and a brave idea and i thought it was one of the you know more clever ideas i've seen this this year so far yeah, you know what I love about this campaign is it drives home a point that Tim and I have been making for a few years now, and I think all of us at Adweek have noticed is that if you want global, you know, kind of social media buzz, all you have to do is create one real world thing. You know that that even if it's in this, even if only twenty, it's kind of going back to that. Uh, clothing store on a cliff, you know, that we've talked about a few times where only 20 people actually made it up to the pop-up shop that was on the edge of this cliff, but that doesn't matter because that's the whole point is that it's hard to get to. And in this case, they kind of had it both ways, right? Like they had the before anyone knows what's happening so that you fuel the viral video, but then the after effect of getting the mob of people out there to see it for themselves. Just really a tremendous example of kind of how to go viral in 2018. I think it's just just perfect example of that. Yeah, totally. And, and Katie's exactly right by saying that it's the details of this thing too. You know, you, if you get it right, if you if you make the actual, you know, not, not everyone watching the brand video is going to get this, but the people who were there, it was an authentic experience experience for them too. It wasn't just made for, for a video. So to, to get the details right on something like this, um, you know, makes it such an experience for, for folks. All right. Well, definitely check out that story. The easiest way to find it is to Google Ad Weekend Diesel, misspelled especially D-E-I-S-E-L. That'll get you to it. Uh, and uh, be sure to check out our creativity section to see all the fun stuff that Tim and his team are covering. All right. We're going to take a quick break, and then we'll be right back for this week's big discussion of the week. This week's episode is brought to you by Facebook, the place to build your brand in a mobile-first world. With vertical video, Instagram stories, 360 video, and more, Facebook helps you create advertising that's impactful, meaningful, and memorable. Unleash your creative potential in front of 2 billion people. Learn more at facebook.com slash video creativity. That's facebook.com slash video creativity. All right, in this week's issue of the Adweek magazine, we've got our Media Agencies of the Year. This is an annual honor for the folks who do media strategy, buying, selling. Uh, you know, again, this is a field that has probably seen more, to use a good jargony term, more disruption than, than probably any other aspect of the agency world. Uh, it's also still a very, very high dollar game because, you know, we talk a lot about organic media ideas and using your kind of owned media. But in the end, there's still a ton of money getting thrown into uh, th these campaigns. The media really does control where a lot of the, the big dollars go. So let's talk about who some of our winners are. Um, we've got our U.S. Media Agency of the Year is Mullen Low Media Hub. Uh, they won 14 out of 16 of their pitches in 2017. Their, their new clients include folks like Chipotle, BET, Staples, Trulia, Lenovo, MTV, uh, several others. Uh, but, uh, but in terms of the work, I want to say they were best known or got the most attention for a lot of their work with Netflix over the past year. Uh, they did those Black Mirror unblockable ads that basically if you were using a, an ad blocker, it still popped up messaging saying like, I know you're trying to block this ad, but we're, you know, we're watching you or something like that. And it's like and then a, a messaging about Black Mirror. Uh, they did some really interesting stuff for Punisher, for Iron Fist. 
uh, in kind of multimedia space. Uh, Patrick, tell us a little bit about your take. I know, I know uh, uh, Lindsay Rittenhouse covered this when she couldn't be on the podcast today, uh, but it does seem like this is a uh, an agency that's really evolving. And they, my favorite part is that they created the R&D lab, but it stands for Radical and Disruptive Lab instead of Research and Development. Right, right. It's a play on words. Um, but they they launched that after they had what was sort of a subpar 2016. And the, the interesting thing about them is that they've been a bit of a mid-sized network, really. Um, they're owned by IPG, obviously, which is huge, but they had not been seen as a competitor to the bigger agencies in recent years. But um, they uh, stepped it up a bit in 2017, and they found themselves pitching more often against the big names for a lot of the names that you, um, that you mentioned, like uh, Ulta Beauty, which is a big account, Chipotle, um, and these are a lot of sort of uh, similarly up-and-coming brands, even though they may seem established. They're not necessarily big spenders like a, a Mars or a P&G or AT&T or whatever, but um, they've, they've racked up a bunch of these wins um, over throughout the year in sort of a consistent uh, pitching pattern, which was one of the things that really stood out. But you're right that it was their, their creative work, I think, that, that drove us to make the decision, ultimately. Um, and it's notable that they won their first Can Lion this year, which was also for their work for Netflix, promoting the series Narcos. Oh, yeah, yeah. Was that the, was, was that the one that was like Coke Lines in the Bathroom? Uh, I believe that they made a video game, I believe. Oh, okay. Oh, the, uh, that one that, like, that one. looked like a graphing calculator. Uh, man, it's like well, it's hard to remember. Narcos has done so much bizarre <laughs> marketing that like it's all blurred. It's true. Well, the interesting one that we covered in this piece was the one that they did to promote the Iron Fist series, because they knew that the core audience was gamers who also happen to love superhero shows. Um, so what they did was they embedded this sort of Easter egg on a popular gaming forum. I believe it was Reddit, but um, I'm, you might have to correct me on that. But what it did was it invited the gamers to use this classic um, Konami code, which anyone who played um, Contra on Nintendo will remember. Up, up, down, down, left, right, left, right. Um, and when they did that, it took them to view an exclusive, exclusive trailer for um, Iron Fist. Yeah, and I think it it also drove to Twitch, right? Which, of course, is like yes. one of the hottest channels for the gaming scene right now. Yes, and it um, drove them to this exclusive streaming game off between two top players. Um, so it was kind of a twofer, and it led to a huge increase in awareness. And they said that Iron Fist was the most streamed drama during the first quarter for Netflix, despite getting kind of universally terrible reviews. <laughs> Not that that matters for a Marvel show, but you know. Yeah. Um, so really a, a creative use of media placement in that case, you know, not not your standard ad buy, not your spon your sponsored tweet, you know. Yeah, Media Hub to me is a perfect example of what we were talking about on last week's episode, which was, uh, you know, I definitely recommend if you haven't gotten a chance to listen to it, it was our episode about ad hacks, creative ad hacks. 
And we we honestly ran out of time. I was going to feature the um, the unblockable ads uh, in that that episode as an example of kind of a creative and tech technology uh, ad hack. But you know, to me, the best agencies, media agencies especially, but you know, also these kind of modern creative agencies are the ones who, like we talked about last week, they see every. Um, limitation as an opportunity you know tons of people using ad blockers cool let's use that you know it's uh, people think ads are creepy let's use that uh you know people don't want to watch ads let's use that they, they find these ways to recognize that kind of like the whole point of our podcast and everything's an ad for them everything is media and you really have to think way beyond just paid media or or your owned media um well, I want to make sure uh, we, we have plenty of other time to talk about the others, but I will just reiterate on the creativity front. I grabbed some quotes uh, that I thought were really interesting from Lindsay's story about Media Hub. Uh, the global president of Media Hub said, when you sit through a creative pitch and the creative director gets up and reads that creative manifesto before the, they show their work, everyone is levitating off their chairs. We want that exact same thing at a media pitch, which is, a, is I will tell you, from the agency world, that's a big change. <laughs> media media pitch used to be basically a big glorified spreadsheet. <laughs> so so that's a that's a big cultural change. Uh, and it's also reflected in uh, you know Patrick mentioned Ulta Beauty, one of their new clients, uh, Shelley House, their SVP of brand marketing uh, told us Media Hub is such a creative powerhouse. Having creativity at the heart of an agency is really uh, of a media agency is really special. So it just goes to show, you know, putting creativity front and center in the media operation is really going to be the key. Uh, to success moving forward. Um, yeah, you know, Mullen Lowe generally as an agency, we've always admired for their creativity and, and you know, Media Hub uh, certainly has that same DNA. And I think that, you know, it's that mindset of thinking creatively about what you can do with media. I've, I've always admired the uh, the JetBlue work that, that Mullen Lowe has done. And uh, a lot of that, you know, the Media Hub's been involved in, in a lot of that stuff. And a lot of those ideas were very media centric. And so, I think uh, I think you know it comes from the the larger companies, uh, just the, just their general creative DNA. Why, you know, why Media Hub's able to have such success and kind of think a little differently about their product uh, than, than some of the bigger shops. Well, let, let's uh, move on to our global media agency of the year. This is MediaCom. To uh, to Patrick's point, a, a bit of a much larger player in the media space, uh, but a really fascinating story. And this is one we see time and again with our agency of the year, whether it's creative agency of the year, media agency of the year, is that they had a terrible year. Uh, they had a terrible client loss. And then they not only bounce back, but they bounce back better. Uh, and I feel like that's such a recurring storyline in the agency world. And so it just goes to show, you know, if you're listening to this, if you're at a shop or if you personally have lost a major client, it's really easy to kind of wallow in despair. Uh, but I think there is just so many examples out there of it can energize you. It can shake you out of your kind of doldrums and your complacency and really force you to get more aggressive. Uh, in the case of Mediacom, they literally launched an initiative called Project Fight Back. Uh, and what happened is they very suddenly lost uh, their $2 billion uh, Volkswagen account that had been with them for 20 years. Uh, and uh, they lost that in 2016, and then they waged this Project Fight Back uh, and and came out of it. Patrick, you wrote about Mediacom's uh, you know return to glory here, <laughs> and they actually came out better uh, than they were before. What did they prioritize uh, to to wage this comeback? Well, I think the story is um, first of all, VW was not the only big account they lost. 
They also lost a significant portion of AB InBev, uh, particularly in the U.S., which uh, Dentsu's Viseum picked up. That was a huge review. And it was kind of a case of they won some, but they lost a lot more. In these reviews, they're separated by region. So it's sort of like it's really hard for these big spenders to consolidate with a single agency. Even if it's Mediacom, which does happen to be the biggest media agency in the world. Um, but what they really did was they, they focused on pitching everywhere and essentially getting involved in every big pitch around the world. They won things like uh, Walgreens Boots Alliance, which is very big healthcare provider. They won uh, Group PSA, which is a French automaker with um, Peugeot. Um, they won several big accounts in China and around like the um, Latin American region as well. So that's one of the ways that they made up for the loss. And then they also picked up a bunch of accounts that may not have been as big as VW or AB InBev, but ultimately really added to their revenue, like Whole Foods, Uniqlo, and Uber. So it was really a case of them just kind of flexing their muscle. And the fact that you know they are the big guns at WPP obviously helped facilitate that. But at, to your point, it really was a case of just kind of doubling down on new business. Yeah, so uh, I really think of Mediacom largely as a, uh, you know, reading through Patrick's story, it, you can really tell from both Mediacom side and from the client side that they see their clients see a lot of value in the talent that they bring to the table, the advice, the guidance uh, that when, you know, when you talk about media, that's really what you're talking about. You want a partner who's going to be aware of everything because media has nine million meanings uh, and definitions these days. So you kind of want people who can help you navigate that. It sounds like they're very hyper-local in making sure that they understand these markets, especially China, and that they're not trying to do everything globally. Uh, but at the same time, they did one of the kind of most creative campaigns of the past year. Uh, Tim, remind us about Snickers Hunger Rhythm uh, was our Best in Show winner for Media Plan of the Year. Uh, remind us how Hunger Rhythm worked. Yeah, this was a campaign that launched uh, in Australia and I believe is coming to the U.S. soon. It was a pretty amazing uh, link between online and out of home. So basically they built uh, an algorithm or a hunger rhythm to kind of gauge the mood on Twitter, uh, whether, you know, folks were happy in the aggregate or whether they were sad. And if they were sad, uh, they somehow managed to connect uh, that uh, moment to the in-store price of a Snickers at 7-Eleven stores. And so if people, if, if the internet as a whole, as judged by the mood on Twitter, uh, was was a little down and needed to pick me up. Uh, the the actual price of Snickers in store and Seven Elevens went down, became easier to buy, and uh, if people were already happy on Twitter, uh, it would go back to uh, regular price. So you know, obviously that's an, uh, a, a pretty crazy um, media challenge to try to connect those things, and I think it, it involved you know, an enormous kind of software challenges and things. Um, but just the idea in general uh, was was really delightful. And the fact that they were able to pull it off, you know, was remarkable. And I think it's one of the one of the great sort of media stories of the last year or two. 
I don't know about you, Katie, but I am super excited about Hunger Rhythm coming to America because those 10 cent Snicker bars every single day of our miserable existence sounds pretty good. Yeah. I mean, if you just pull like New York City on a daily basis, I'm sure we'll be swimming in Snickers. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Well, real quick, I wanted to hit up our third agency of the year. This new category, Breakthrough Media Agency of the Year. I went to 360i. Uh, It's a shop that's been around about uh, 20 years, but not necessarily one you think of as a media agency. Uh, they've been known as really a, a digital agency, which is a term that doesn't honestly mean a whole lot these days. Uh, we used to have a digital agency of the year that we no longer uh, give an award to because everybody's a digital agency. And so media has been a big part of how 360i is growing. And I think they went up something like 25%. They grew uh, over year over year. Uh, and as an example, their uh, CEO talked about you know, they talked a lot about creativity and how it's baked into what they do. Uh, they mentioned that one of their copywriters wrote a letter uh, that ran in a Houston newspaper about how New Orleans was opening its door to storm victims uh, to come to New Orleans, a very touching letter. Uh, and so it began as a newspaper ad, and then it was actually read on stage by Bono during a U2 concert in New Orleans last September, uh, which has got to be a life time career achievement <laughs> for a copywriter. I can't imagine anything quite measuring up to that. But it just goes to show you you just never know. Uh, a media buy that starts as a newspaper ad can end up becoming this cultural moment uh, starring Bono. So uh, it's it's really interesting. They also, of course, uh, true to their roots, you know, they are focusing on a lot of tech, uh, on voice activation and e-commerce, which of course are super hot uh, trends right now. It's very wise to embrace those. Uh, and then Amazon's uh, ad network, which is growing. And I think a lot of agencies are, are kind of scratching their heads about how to embrace Amazon as the third leg of this, what is currently a duopoly with Google and Facebook. Uh, and so I think the, the shops that are going to be kind of first market with some of those ideas will probably probably fare very well uh, in the media world. And, uh, well, that, that's about all the time we've got. But, uh, Katie, I'm curious, you know, as someone, you've covered the agency world, you're currently covering the brand world. What are some of the trends you're seeing here uh, uh, around, you know, if, if if a media agency were to ask you or someone going into media as a career were asking you, like, what should I be thinking about? I mean, you know, what kind of advice would you give them? Uh, that's a very good question. Um, I don't, I mean, I guess to the point that, everyone's kind of been making about the evolution of media agencies, just that being open to creativity in the media landscape is really key. And like using data in a, in a fun and interesting way, I think will set you apart from other media shops. Um, but yeah, that's, that's a tough question. I mean, I wonder if Patrick has a thought on, on that as well. Well, coincidentally, I have a trending piece in this issue about um, how clients are generally looking for partners rather than buyers. You know, as you said at the beginning of the podcast, David, uh, media has long been sort of a purely transactional business model. But now we see um, that in these big reviews, the clients really want more like a consulting um, presence, you know, like uh, agencies that can sort of help them work through the tech. And it's a lot of it comes from the fact that um, media buying increasingly is being automated. So clients are able to take more of that in house. And it has long been the most profitable operation for these media agencies. So they have to kind of move beyond it 
and show that they're really adding value to the client rather than just you know buying X number of placements and getting them in front of this many eyeballs. Yeah, you know, it's funny when I, I may have mentioned this on the podcast before, but, you know, for agencies for decades, the media department was where you went to like laugh at and be jealous of all the swag that they get shipped constantly. Posters, alcohol, like all this, all these gifts from these media outlets trying to court them uh, because media buying and selling and strategy were done by, by hand. You know, they were hand carved artisanally uh, and, you know, because it wasn't programmatic. And, you know, it's just it, it was kind of a joke in the agency world of just how basically wined and dined these folks were. And programmatic changed all that. <laughs> like, you you know, it's it's a, a program that that decides like, oh, yeah, uh, you know, we should move our ads over here because that's where the eyeballs are. And we seem to be getting better traction. You don't have to base it on who sent you the nicer bottle of cognac or whatever. Uh, so it's it's definitely a changing landscape. I think media for a long time had a to, you know, maybe this is controversial, I don't know, but they had a very plush kind of life. Uh, and now, like a lot of agencies, uh, they're having to work a lot harder for it. Um, and, you know, I'm not disrespecting the amount of work that they've always put into it, but I certainly think it's a much more challenging industry now. Well, we are out of time, but thank you so much to Patrick and Katie, especially for joining us to talk about those. Check out all of our Media Agency of the Year stories in print and on adweek.com. Uh, and, uh, yeah, give all three of those a read along with all the other stories in this week's issue. Our theme music is by Home. This episode was produced by Anya Fernando and edited by Josh Rios. Please take a moment to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, uh, wherever you get your podcasts. Those reviews mean a lot to us and uh, help us uh, find new listeners. So I'm David Greiner with Adweek, and we will be back next week. Hey there, are you ready to elevate your personal brand or company? Meet Viral Growth, your one-stop shop for video content and audience building. Imagine growing your brand organically on social media without the hassle of editing videos for hours. With Viral Growth, it's a breeze. They handle the brainstorming, scripting, and editing while you simply just hit record. And don't worry about your niche. They cater to everyone, from business and marketing to health and wellness. Are you ready to make waves in the social media realm? Visit viralgrowth.io and use code ADWEEK, that's A-D-W-E-E-K, all lowercase, and get 10% off your plan.